0: Open your Bibles if you have them. Psalm 30 is where we're going to be this morning, Psalm 30. If you don't have a Bible of your own, there is one in the pew back in front of you. You can feel free, if you don't have a Bible, to take that one. um, You can leave with it. We won't check you on the way out or anything like that. You can just, just take it. Uh, a favorite in our household is J.R. Tolkien, and when I say that, there's a temptation probably on a lot of people to call us nerds. Oh, that's fine. I will own the nerd badge. My boys, uh, a couple years ago, we, I read them out loud. Uh, I, I tend to, I like to read books out loud to them, and, and we started with The Hobbit, and uh, they loved that one, and so then we went to the first book of Lord of the Rings. They, they liked that one, and then we got into the second book of Lord of the Rings, and they're starting to like that one too, and and it's a, it, 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 Tolkien's a favorite of ours. The way he tells stories and his the way he he develops the, the narrative is just is just wonderful. He he coined a phrase back in the or a term back in the nineteen forties called eucatastrophe. You've heard of it? The eucatastrophe. It's the point in the story where the main character is at his absolute lowest. It seems that the character is beyond salvation, cannot be rescued at this point. And the catastrophe is that moment right at death when you think it can't get any darker and there's absolutely no hope of salvation, that things take a miraculous turn and the character is restored to life. You've probably been gripped in theaters or maybe reading a book where you've Seen this character that you've grown to love over the last couple of hours be taken to the brink. And you think, well, how is he going to get out of this one? How could she possibly live through this? And then all of a sudden, at the last possible moment, there's salvation coming from an unexpected source. This morning, in our psalm that's before us, we're going to read a psalm of celebration. It's a psalm where David is giving thanks and praise to the Lord, but he has just come from that moment of eucatastrophe, where he's lowered into the pit and things could not get any worse, and he is miraculously brought back. What that is, we're not entirely sure, we're going to make some guesses, but the point being, David is saved, and this psalm is a psalm of celebration about the deliverance That the Lord has given to him. Let's read our psalm here, Psalm 30, a psalm of David, a song at the dedication of the temple. I will extol you, O Lord, for you have drawn me up and have not let my foes rejoice over me. O Lord, my God, I cried to you for help and you have healed me. O Lord, you have brought up my soul from Sheol. You restored me to life from among those who go down to the pit. Sing praises to the Lord, O you you His saints, and give thanks to His holy name. For His anger is but for a moment, and His favor is for a lifetime. Weeping may tarry for the night, but joy comes with the morning. As for me, I said in my prosperity, I shall never be moved. By your favor, O Lord, you made my mountain stand strong. You hid your face May sing your praise and not be silent. O Lord, my God, I will give thanks to you forever. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, our prayer this morning is that we not only understand the words that are written here by David, but that we actually apply it to our lives. Give us ears to hear, eyes to see, and hearts to obey. Without it, we cannot understand, we cannot apply, we cannot do any of these things. But with your Spirit's help, we might see what is written, the truth therein, and actually apply it to our lives. Where there is waywardness in us, convict us of sin and correct us. Give us the gift of repentance. Where there is room for rejoicing, I pray that you would amplify it. That we might, at the end of this, sing praises to your name and be encouraged. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. What people often don't realize in the Psalms is that heading at the very top of the Psalm, that's inspired too, right? That's not just there for your benefit. Uh, No English writer, just put that in later. That's actually written in Hebrew, and it's meant for you to read. It is, as we would say, inspired. Now, most of the time I don't talk much about it because it just says a Psalm of David, and it's usually pretty simple. It just gives us the author. But this time it goes a little bit further. Not only says a Psalm of David... But then it actually tells us the intention of the psalm. And it says, a song at the dedication of the temple. Now that happens to be a little bit problematic if you're familiar with Jewish history or if you're familiar with David at all. Because you'll know that David died before the temple was ever built. In fact, David wanted to build the temple, but he couldn't. He was a man of war. God prevented him from building the temple. And so God said, your son will build the temple. And so he let Solomon build the temple. Solomon was the one, after some years after David's death, about five years or so, sometime around 966 B.C., Solomon co- constructs the temple. And so it presents for us a bit of a problem. How then could David write a psalm at the dedication of the temple, not for the dedication of the temple, but at the dedication of the temple, as the title suggests, if he's already dead? A Problem? Sure. So some people would say, well, the Bible's riddled with errors. Uh, We believe that the Bible is inerrant and infallible, so that solution, I'm afraid, will not work for us. So what is the solution? Maybe this title comes later. Maybe David's already dead and they attribute this psalm to David in spite of the fact that he didn't write it. So he gets the credit. Somebody else wrote it. I don't think that would work well for us either because it does say a psalm of David. So that would tend to mean David wrote it, right? Since it's a psalm of of David, that would stand to reason. So what are the other possible solutions that could be presented here that make some amount of sense? Well, there's a lot of ways in which this could be a psalm of David at the dedication, as it says, of the temple, with still preserving biblical inerrancy and infallibility like 2 Samuel 5.11. Second Samuel 5.11 says this, And Hiram, king of Tyre, sent messengers to David and cedar trees, also carpenters and masons, who built David a house. And David knew that the Lord had established him king over Israel and that he had exalted his kingdom for the sake of his people Israel. Now, the word temple in the heading of our psalm also is the same Hebrew word for house. So, it's possible that the consecration of David's house is his reason for writing this psalm. It's the consecration of his house. Now, why would this psalm be a psalm of lament and woe for the despair that he was in, and then being brought high to celebrate the consecration of his house? Because in 2 Samuel 5, that house that's being built is being built in the city of Jerusalem. Do you know why that's significant? Because this is the first time David has really been into Jerusalem on a mission to conquer it from the Jebusites. And after he conquers it, he is going to build a house there and set himself up as king over Israel without any dispute. This is the first time that David has been recognized as king over the entire nation, a united kingdom. Until that point, it had been a divided kingdom with him and Ishbosheth. But at this point, he has been crowned king over all of Israel. And how do we know that? Well, when the pagan nations start paying tribute to God's king, then we know not only has the nations recognized him as king, but God has recognized him as king. So there is reason to celebrate. He's no longer in exile in Hebron. He's now been brought into the land in Israel. So that's a possibility. Another possibility is 1 Chronicles 22, or 21 and 22, where it says this. At that time, when David saw that the Lord had answered him at the threshing floor of Ornan the Jebusite, who we're all familiar with, he sacrificed There. For the tabernacle of the Lord, which Moses had made in the wilderness, and the altar of burnt offering were at that time at the high place of Gibeon. But David could not go before it to inquire of God, for he was afraid of the sword of the angel of the Lord. Then, in 22, verse 1, Then David said, Here shall be the house of the Lord God, and here the altar of burnt burnt offering for Israel. So David bought a threshing floor of Ornan the Jebusite. Are you familiar with it? Do you know where it is? Well, it's Mount Moriah, or it became eventually known as the Temple Mount. If you've ever been to Israel and you've ever been to the location of the Temple Mount, it's also the location of Ornan the Jebusite's threshing floor, in case you were wanting to know. And so David, soon after this passage, calls for Solomon to there build the temple. So it's possible that this psalm, could have been at this moment in David's life, where he was brought low and actually brought to a point where he could give praise to God by building a temple or setting it to be consecrated, giving Solomon the permission to build the temple. The sacrifice there was to make amends, so to speak, for an offense that David had in counting his people. David had been punished by God for counting his people, and this setting up the temple and buying the floor of Ornan the Jebusite was set up so that he could actually bring sacrifice and make amends for the sin that he had done. Now, there might be some other possibilities in David's life, but the point is that there are plenty of places that could make this a logical place for this song. Now, all of that seems like it's not really important. It's just background information. But actually, it's tremendously important for what David is actually trying to say to us. You can see in this psalm, it's basically divided into two stanzas of praise, and right in the middle is a confession. He's got a sinful confession that's actually going to reveal quite a bit about David. We're going to see him swallow some pride here and outright own some of his sin. And so this psalm has several features to it. And my hope is that... First, this psalm will encourage you. I really want you to be encouraged at the end of this. I don't want you to be discouraged. In spite of what some of the things that I'm going to say, I don't want you to be discouraged. I want you to be encouraged. Second, I hope it's going to shift your perspective on the purpose for which the Lord brings suffering to us. I think that's a tremendous question in the mind of so many Christians, why is it that I suffer? And I'm not going to pretend we're going to answer the whole gamut of that question. But I think at least part of it is answered in this psalm. Why is it that the Lord brings suffering to me? And third, I hope it causes you to analyze the direction of your life. And if you have strayed, to repent, So I first want us to look at the first five verses to see why exactly David is brought to praise. You can see out of the gate, David has been saved from some catastrophe. He says there, I will extol you, O Lord, for you have drawn me up. This is the same phrase that's used of a pail being dipped into a well. It's being lowered all the way down into the bottom of a well and then is brought up. And in verse 3 he says, I was lowered into the grave, into the pit, like that bucket in the well, but the Lord drew me up out of the grave that is out of Sheol. Now, now what was going on here for, that David is praising the Lord for? Was he sick? Did the Lord bring him to death? He says here uh, that the Lord healed him, which he seems to say, seems to say yes, that he was sick. But then he turns in verse 4. Now that he's been healed and he commends the assembly before the Lord, look at verse 4. He says, Sing praises to the Lord, O you his saints, and give thanks to his holy name, for his anger is but for a moment. And his favor is for a lifetime. Weeping may tarry for the night, but joy comes in the morning. So if this is an illness, it appears to be no ordinary illness. It appears to be the kind of illness that is brought about in David's life by God himself because of David's sin. So this seems to be what the Lord was doing in reaction to something that David had done. David had overstepped his bounds, and God has come in with this correction as an illness. So as an example of what I referenced earlier in Chronicles, the text says in First Chronicles 21.1, Then Satan stood against Israel and incited David to number Israel. Satan comes along and tempts David to number Israel. And then just a few verses later, we see this in verse 7. But God was displeased with this thing, and he struck Israel. And David said to God, I have sinned greatly in that I have done this thing. But now please take away the iniquity of your servant, for I have acted very foolishly. Now, it doesn't say how specifically David had uh, been struck or how Israel had been struck by the Lord. But later on, it's going to say the Lord gave David basically a choice, and the result was that, David, that God sent a pestilence to Israel. And the result of that pestilence was that it killed 70,000 people in Israel. So potentially, this or a situation like it, where David's sin brings about the Lord's discipline to the point where the people have died, and it seems apparent, by David's own admission, that he was very nearly among them. He almost died. Now, you might be thinking, the Old Testament is weird, right? Man, the fact that a guy can sin, and the Lord brings a pestilence and kills 70,000 people of the Israelites, it seems to be a momentous step. I mean, the Old Testament is very strange. But this is actually an Old and New Testament thing. Remember, Paul mentions that people that take the Lord's Supper inappropriately are brought to sickness, and some of them have died. Look at 1 uh, Corinthians eleven thirty. That is why many of you are weak and ill, and some have died. And he's referencing there taking the Lord's Supper inappropriately. This is New Testament. This is post Jesus, all right? Same kind of thing happens in James. James says mentions in verse 5 when he says he asks if anyone among you is sick, he says this in verse 14, is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let him pray over and let them pray over him anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord, and the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. So the remedy then mentioned by James in this very difficult text, the remedy mentioned by James is that the person who is sick would call the elders so that the group of men who are charged with pastoring the church might come around this person and pray for him And he might be healed. And he he even goes as far as to guarantee healing, breaking out the oil, all kinds of things like that. I can promise you, if you've got sickness, I will pray for you. We will pray for you. I promise you that. I can't personally guarantee that the Lord will heal you. But what is James talking about here? Because he seems unashamed to do that, to just call it out there. I think what's going on here is someone has illness brought about by sin in their life. They're calling the elders. They're not calling the doctors. They're calling the elders to come around him and pray for him. Why? Because in the event that this was a sin-caused sickness, then their sins will be forgiven. Now, perhaps you've never been in that situation where a sin of yours has brought about an illness in which case i would say to you good that shouldn't be the norm if you're thinking i've never experienced something like that well great that's fantastic i'm happy about that but even if you haven't been there specifically have you ever been disciplined by the lord Have you ever had a moment in your life where you're convinced the Lord came into your life and has corrected you? Now, you might be thinking to yourself, Well, how do I know if the Lord has come in and actually disciplined me? Well, it's moments in your life where you're brought low because of a specific sin. That sin is brought to mind and you know that you're guilty. And the Lord is bringing it to mind and bringing conviction upon you. And it may be that the result of that conviction is that the Lord, as the psalmist often says, hides His face from you. Meaning that the intimacy that you felt with the Lord, those times where you open the Bible and read it, it just seems really stale. Those times in the worship service where you're hearing the sermon preached or you're singing the songs, they just seem very bland. Everything just seems very distant and far away. God seems really distant from you. And you just long for that closeness or that richness to the relationship that perhaps you once had. The intrigue of reading Scripture, it's gone. But it's absent because you have engaged in a repeated sinful activity and it's being brought to mind over and over and it either remains unconfessed or you continue to deal with it and you don't see fit to do anything about it. Perhaps you don't want to do what it takes to do anything about it. Now hear me. First, that's not to say that all suffering is because of sin. That is not what I said, and that's not what I mean. Not all suffering is because of sin. Second, that's also not saying that God hates you or is mad at you because He is bringing about suffering in your life due to a sin. In fact, it's quite the opposite. The author of Hebrews tells us this in Hebrews 12, 6 7. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? He's telling you it's precisely because he loves you that he's bringing about discipline. You mean it's because He loves me that He's hiding His face from me? Yes, that's exactly what I mean. It's because He loves you that He's hiding His face from you. So let me ask, have you ever been there? If so, you might be wondering, why is this the way the Lord has chosen to get my attention? Why is this the way he gets David's attention? Why is this the way he still gets my attention now? Hiding his face from me, or even going so far as to bringing about suffering in my life. Why is it that he does that? David actually answers that here in the psalm. And the first reason, he says, is for humility. He does it for your own humility. David tells us exactly what's going on. Look at verse 6. As for me... I said in my prosperity, I shall never be moved. Now, do you know why that's an important phrase there? I shall never be moved. Because it wasn't 20 Psalms earlier. In Psalm 10, verse 3, David says this For the wicked boasts of the desires of his soul, and the one greedy for gain curses and renounces the Lord. And then three three verses later, in verse 6, he says this. He says in his heart, I shall not be moved. Throughout all generations, I shall not meet adversity. So the reason that's important is because David, it seems, has not listened to his own advice. Or perhaps... Psalm 10 is because he got to this point. And then he wrote Psalm 10 later. That's also possible. But the point is, he's advised against it, and he has become the object of what he has advised against. And what does he say the catalyst of it was? He says the catalyst was his own prosperity. What a devilish trap prosperity is for every single one of us. See, we often think of poverty as a trial, and we don't think of prosperity as a trial. They're both trials. Prosperity is a trial because it lures us into a wicked snare. And we might think any number of the following things. One, we have all we need. If you don't think you've fallen into this snare, when's the last time you asked God for daily bread? Jesus commands us to. Why do we not ask for it? Because we have all we need. Our pantries are stocked full. We have all we need. Why rely on the Lord to pay our bills? I have a good job. I have a savings account. I can pay a water bill. I don't need to rely on the Lord because I have all I need. Second, we become enthralled by toys. I know I'm not the only one that's got a Prime membership. I know I'm not the only one that feels just a, even a twinge, admit it, a little twinge of excitement when the UPS man comes to the door. Perhaps you've forgotten what you ordered. Huh? Am I the only one? I know I'm not. Can I get an amen? Amen. You walk to the door, you open it, and you're like, ooh, I forgot what it is. What is it? Give me the knife, give me the knife, give me the knife. Toilet paper. (laughs) You get a little disappointed when it's nothing, right? Uh Uh-huh, I know. We become enthralled by toys. And the older we get, the more expensive our toys get. But we become enthralled by them. Three, we use it to peddle our influence. We use our prosperity to peddle our influence. Church doesn't like... Church doesn't do something that I like? Withhold. Why do we do that? Because we think it's ours. We think it's ours. I earned it, and I'll use it to peddle my influence to show how disgruntled I am. Number four. We think... Our hard work got us here. Our hard work got us here. I work harder than everyone else. I'm smarter than everyone else. I went to school and applied myself. I picked myself up by my own bootstraps. I came from poverty, and now I have wealth. And why? Because I did it. I earned it. I am the epitome of the American dream. This is the very trap David fell into. Among everyone else around him that may be wandering in squalor, he's the epitome of wealth. God selected him to be king. Why? Maybe it's because I'm so good. Maybe it's because I have a heart that really seeks after the Lord. It's the same trap that the children of Israel were warned about in Deuteronomy 6, verse 10. And when the Lord, your God, brings you into the land that He swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, to give to you, with great and good cities that you did not build, and houses full of good things that you did not fill, and cisterns that you did not dig, and vineyards and olive trees that you did not plant, and when you eat and are full, then take care, lest you forget the Lord." who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. It is the Lord your God you shall fear. Him you shall serve, and by His name you shall swear. David says that it was, his, it was in his prosperity that led him to believe that he would never be moved. But now he understands in verse 7 that it was only, he says, the favor of the Lord that had put him in that place. I'm mistaken. It was actually your favor, O Lord, that put me in that place. And so when the Lord took it away by throwing him into a pit or bringing about suffering or maybe even bringing him very near death or at least some sort of despair, David realized his sin and cried out to the Lord for help. But it's precisely at this point that David is driving at about the discipline that the Lord has brought to him. What was it for? It was for his own humility. It was that he might be brought low. And that's not different from the Old Testament to the New Testament. Its purpose is to bring us to the point where we actually plead to God for mercy. As David says in verses 8 to 10, we live in a world that would bristle at the thought that God inflicts pain upon his children to make them beg for mercy. And I want to put it like that, to show you how stark and how drastic that measure is. But we live in a world that would bristle at that. That's not the kind of God I believe in. Surely God would never. That's not the kind of God I want to serve. A God who would inflict pain and suffering on his own children in order to make them beg for mercy. But that's primarily, I think, because we don't understand the gravity of our own sin. And what it's actually doing. And that it will never satisfy us. Nor do we understand the purpose for which we were created. And that is to worship the one who is truly worthy of worship. You were created for that purpose, and that is the only thing that will fulfill you. And the sin that promises satisfaction on the front end will never give you fulfillment on the back end. Do you notice that? That going into sin, everything on the front end promises you, this is going to be great. And then on the back end, it falls through your hands like sand through the hourglass we grasped, truly, the sin and the magnitude of the sin that we're being disciplined for, and if at the same time the clouds were just parted and we got just a glimpse behind the curtain at the glory and majesty of God Himself sitting on His throne, I think at that point we would get it. I think we would understand and we might be even grateful for the times that He has stepped into our existence and He has impeded our journey after sin in order that we might be brought low and beg Him for mercy and sing praises to His name. When a child begins to crawl and walk, as parents, you have to baby-proof your house. Right? My kids once stuck a fork or tried to stick a fork in the light socket i I don't know why they know how to do this you can give them a knife or a fork and they immediately walk to the light socket as if they know exactly what will kill them and so grayson comes running around the corner and goes mommy it boinged him that's all he could say it it boinged him andrew's standing there with a fork (laughs) to this day we don't know what happened but he just walks in circles and um (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> Only when it rains, though, so it's fine. <laughs> no, but when a child when a child is is young and they start to walk and crawl, you have to baby proof your whole house. You have to put the little bumpers around the fireplace. You have to put the little plugs in the in the plug so it doesn't boing him and and uh, and and then at that moment you you then pack him up and you take him over to somebody else's house that has much older kids. And you realize, oh, goodness gracious, their house isn't baby-proofed anymore. And so mom or dad spends the entire time walking around with the kid around the house, following them around, making sure that they're not getting into trouble. And the kid thinks this is a fun game. Now mom and dad are following us around. And and like, I don't know why, but this is great. Until you slap something out of their hand. Or you take them and you move them away from something that's going to cause them harm. Then all of a sudden, That becomes the only thing that they're interested in. The rest of the world is shut out, and that's the only thing. And you spend all day moving them back and forth and trying to put this thing up and unplugging all the lamps and everything like that. There is another alternative. Now, I want you to hear me. I'm not recommending this. This is not official counsel. This might be what you call old-school parenting that I may or may have not used a time or two. And that is, they encounter something just a hair dangerous, and you let them experience the danger of said thing. Mom and dad sit on the couch comfortably talking with their friends while the baby reaches out and touches it and realizes, oh, the fireplace is hot. Now, it's baby-proofed. Now, I'm not recommending that, all right? Officially, I'm not recommending that, but I am saying... It kind of works sometimes, just right? So often we want to jab a fork into the light socket of sin and we enjoy the charge that it gives us. And very occasionally, God may just sit on the couch and give you just a tiny glimpse of what your life might be like if he were to just let go? What would it be like if I just plunged it in all the way? What would it be like if I just held on for all I have? Maybe, just maybe, David being brought very near, maybe literal death. You might be, have an illness being brought near to literal death. Maybe it might be something like depression or anxiety or merely that kind of staleness of the relationship. Whatever it is, perhaps the Lord is giving you just a glimpse of what a life without Him might be like. Perhaps He's given you that just peek behind the curtain at utter hell. And if you've ever suffered through depression, I can tell you, it feels like literal hell. Perhaps it's just that moment. Now, I didn't say all depression or all anxiety or all suffering is because of your sin. I didn't say that. But in some cases, there are sins that are coming to your mind for which you know you're guilty. And you aren't doing what is necessary to turn away from it. You aren't cutting off a hand, gouging out an eye, cutting off a foot, as Jesus says. You are limping along, able-footed. You're not doing what is necessary to be brought low so that you might be first and foremost, uh, uh, the Lord might be first and foremost in all your considerations. You're not telling anybody, keeping it in. Because what would happen if they found out? But you might be in a worse situation. You might be engaging in sin, in bitterness, in hostility towards others. You might be entrenched in your own prosperity. And this morning is the first time that you've ever had something come into your mind that says, Wait a minute. I might be in sin here. In which case, that's fantastic. That's great. Do you realize that if that thought has come into your head, and if you're identifying a sin in your own life, that it... Is the Lord calling your attention to it? It's a shot across the bow. It's illuminating for you for once the sin that's in your heart. One of two things might happen to you at this moment. You potentially... Could get up after this is over and leave and go on your merry way, and you might never remember that. You might say it was brought up. I think I just sweep it under the rug. Who really cares? You go away. You forget. You have lunch. You do all the things that you do on Sunday and Monday and Tuesday, and you don't ever bring it to mind again, and it's never brought to your attention again, or. Those convictions might sit on you. They might bring you down to the lowest that you've ever been before. Where you have to eat a ton of crow. Where you have to confess all the sins. You have to tell people that you're really uncomfortable telling. If it's the former, you go about your merry way. You're in trouble. What does it say if God's not correcting you? If it's the latter, where you're brought low, praise God. We're all in that situation, by the way. Every single one of us is in a situation or have been at one time or another where we've had to eat a lot of crow and be brought really low. And be humiliated. You know, I've never followed someone else's child around the house making sure that they weren't electrocuted. That's their parent's job. If God isn't parenting you, it's because you're not His child. And I say that with a lot of grief. Because I know, I know there are people that will hear this, that will think, maybe I'm not his child. It's to make us humble. It's the reason he brings pain sometimes, but also happiness also, happiness. Look at what he says in verse eleven: "You have turned from me for me my mourning into dancing. You have loosed my sackcloth and clothed me with gladness." What if I told you that God actually wants you to be happy? Now, that sounds like a message that is perfect for the generation we live in, is it not? God wants you to be happy. Don't we live where millions of people are telling everyone, God just wants you to be happy? The difference is that the world is peddling a kind of happiness that is however you define it. That's what the world means by happiness. God just wants you to be happy. And that happiness is however you define it. If it feels good, do it. But that's not the kind of happiness that... That David is actually describing here. He tells you what kind of happiness it is, and it's not that. He says, you have turned for me my mourning into dancing. You have loosed my sackcloth and clothed me with gladness. From my prosperity, and I shall never be moved, to you have clothed me with gladness. Do you see the difference? The joy that David is experiencing is not in the money or the fame or the success or the health or the sex or the food or the fun. His joy is that those things are now bringing praise out of his mouth to the Lord. In other words, he's not enjoying those things as an end of themselves. Those things are bringing about praise out of his mouth for the one who gave him those things. Look at what he says in verse 12. That my glory may sing your praise and not be silent, O Lord my God. I will give thanks to you forever. That's what he's happy about. The prosperity is still there. You realize that? He's still king. The prosperity is still there. But now the difference is that prosperity is bringing about praise that's oriented toward the one who gave it to him. Many of the sins that we pursue, are they not God-given pleasures that we have opted to enjoy in a way that cannot be expressed in thanksgiving to God? I want you to think about that for just a second. Many of the sins that we pursue, are they not pleasures that are God given that we have co opted or stolen to celebrate for ourselves? And that can't be used as an expression of thanksgiving to God. Fornication is based on a good, God given pleasure, it's a good, God given pleasure. That's what it's based on, but it's stolen and it's used for our own selfish gain and gratification. But don't get distracted from the fact that God has given you a gift to be enjoyed within the confines that he has given it to you in. And when it's enjoyed within those confines, there is much celebration and joy because at that point, you are experiencing sex to the fullness within the confines of marriage. He has done that, by the way, for your good and for His glory, for your happiness and for His glory. Our culture struggles to define what consent means. And God, thousands of years ago, has given it to you. And he called it marriage. Why is it that the culture can't find happiness there? Why is it that people are accused of rape and all kinds of other things? Because they've got it twisted. They're not listening to the one who gave it to them, but they're enjoying it nonetheless. "Quote unquote," gluttony is based on a good God-given enjoyment of food. He didn't have to make it taste good. He could have just caused it to end the hunger. You realize that we get a stomach pain when we get hungry, which some of some of us are. I get it. But he didn't have to make it taste good, and he did. He gave it for your enjoyment but then we co-opt it with greed and, and fear that he's not going to provide anymore or whatever, and it causes us to be gluttons for food, and we celebrate the food as an end in of itself, and it doesn't bubble up into praise to the Lord who gave it to us. God has provided you, Christian, with a world that has resources aplenty, and they're meant for you to enjoy because God wants you to be happy. But he's also given you the boundaries To celebrate it within. To enjoy within. And this is the purpose for which God brings us low. You see that? That's the reason He brings the suffering. The reason He brings the humility to us is so that we can turn at the last moment, on the brink of collapse, we can turn and realize that it's Him that brought us low and it's Him we should praise and celebrate. And it's then that we experience joy to the fullness it's not just a you catastrophe. God is creating the you catastrophe. In fact, you might call him the you catastrophizer. The one who does you catastrophes. He's in the business, in other words, of doing you catastrophes. I had to use the sermon title at some point, right? He's the one. He's the one who's disciplining you, who's bringing you low, so that, as the writer of the story might do, he show the true redemption that you have in Christ when you learn to celebrate the goodness of the world around you within the confines that he's given to you. Let's not forget, this is the same God who brought his own son to the point of death, not just to the point of death, through death and out the other side. At the moment where we thought it couldn't get any darker, those three days when God the Son was in the grave is about the darkest days in human history. And what happened? But that He rose from the dead. And He has promised to do the same thing to you, Christian. That you're being brought low, even into death, even being put into a grave is ultimately for your good and for his glory. Question is is your life testifying to the great you Is that how you live your life celebrating the one who does you catastrophes? Are you using money or sex or food or possessions in a way that does not please God? If so, repent. Is praise of God always on your lips, or is it a constant refrain of griping and complaining? If so, repent. If you want to celebrate the one who brings the dead to life, then let praise always be on your mouth, because it's a testimony to what he has done. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we ask you, Lord, to forgive us. Where we overstep our bounds, where we grumble and complain, where we do things we ought not, we pray for forgiveness. Father, we also pray that every person in here who might have realized sin, would not sweep it under the rug, but would confess it, would come to you completely open, bringing every sin they know about that they're guilty of. And would you, as the father to the prodigal son, run to them, Hug them, welcome them in, and show them mercy. I pray that for every one of us, even if we're not currently in that position, we have been or will be. And I pray for us too, that you will show us mercy. Pray these things in Jesus' name.